0: Back in December, in a Foundations class on Five Christians You Should Know, we were introduced to the life of William Borden. He lived a remarkable life. William was born in my hometown, uh, Chicago, Illinois, in the United States, and he was born on Tuesday, the 1st of November, 1887. He was born into a very prominent and wealthy family. His father had made an incredible fortune in silver mining in Colorado. And with that wealth, he provided his family with almost limitless opportunity. So, on the day that William was born, he already had more money than most, if not all of us, will ever have. Now, his father provided the money, but his mother, Mary, introduced him to Jesus. She was born again through the preaching of the gospel that she heard at the Chicago Avenue Church and immediately began bringing her four children along with her. And so, as William grew older, his family spared no expense to give him the very best education money could buy. And as a a capstone to his secondary school learning... His parents purchased a trip around the world by boat. It was a graduation present for him. They hoped that by broadening William's perspective on the world, that this would fuel his higher education ambitions. But instead, it filled his heart with compassion for a lost world, for perishing souls dying without the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His father sent him to Yale University, hoping that an Ivy League education would reorient his son's passions back toward the business world, to making money. But shortly after he graduated from, or before he graduated from Yale, William attended a missions conference where he heard Samuel Zwamer passionately call young university students to give themselves to the task of taking the gospel here. To the Arabian Peninsula. William wrote down this quote from Zweimer's message. Zweimer said, We ought to press in, sacrificing our lives, if need be, for God on behalf of the peoples of Arabia. Shall we stand by and allow these millions to perish with no knowledge of the saving love and power of Christ? Not because they have refused to listen, not because they have thrust us back, but because none of us has ever had the courage to go to those lands and win them to Jesus Christ. Well, Borden didn't let that challenge pass him by. And so, a short while after graduating from Yale, he set sail to Cairo to be mentored by Zweimer as he learned the Arabic language. He arrived in Cairo in late March 1913 and immediately began his language studies. And I mean, right away, the first day. By the end of his first week in Egypt, he'd already had multiple conversations on the street and was excited about the evangelism he could even already do. But near the end of that week, he began to experience headaches. Most most assumed it was because he couldn't handle the heat. He was having some sort of mild heat stroke. And so William took the day off to rest. He laid down on his bed and never got up. Less than two weeks after arriving in Cairo, 25-year-old William Borden died of cerebral meningitis. When the news reached Chicago, the local newspaper described his death as a tragedy. Borden had thrown his life away. He had thrown his fortune away. He had made a waste of all of his education. Well, I wonder, what do you think of this? What do you make of his life? Had William Borden badly miscalculated? Was following the call to bring the gospel to the Middle East worth the cost of such a young and promising life? In our age and day of convenience, rapid door delivery of food and everything else you could want, with widespread middle-class comfort on the rise nearly everywhere, is a life like William Borden's unexplainable? Well, this morning, let's explore the logic that inspired William Borden to see if you will reach the same conclusion he did. And to do that, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament, so open to the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. In the eighth chapter of Mark, the author, Mark, is concerned with the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you'll see in the text throughout the chapter, displays His mercy and His compassion, His divine power to provide sustenance, to provide food to create it, and to heal. But a sinful and unbelieving generation could not see Him and would not acknowledge Him for who He was. The climax of the whole chapter happens in verse 27. So look down at verse 27, Mark 8:27. Here Jesus asks His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And that was the breakthrough moment. Jesus is the promised one, the savior of the world. Now, finally, he had been seen and declared to be who he was by a simple Galilean fisherman. And then, immediately after this announcement, just on the heels of Peter's declaration, Jesus began to teach what it would cost to be associated with the Christ. So, look down with me at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark eight thirty four. and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Now, the structure of this little paragraph is not complex. It is a command. You see that in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And yeah, but that's not a very easy command to follow, is it? So, four reasons are given, four motivations explaining why it's worth it to follow Christ. There's one motivation for each verse, starting with the word for. They're in verse 35, verse 36, 37, and 38. And so we'll divide this paragraph into two points. First, the meaning of following Jesus, and second, the motivation for following Jesus. Meaning and motivation. A very simple outline. So if you're taking notes, just jot those two words down. Meaning and motivation. And then follow along as we see this from the text. And so what does it mean for someone to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior from heaven, and to follow Him? Look down again at verse 34. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The English phrase you see there, come after me, is a translation of the Greek word which simply means to follow. So Jesus is saying that if you would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. Following Jesus involves two things. So clearly, seen in the text. First, deny yourself. Second, take up your cross. So first, what does it mean to deny yourself? We should acknowledge that there have been many strange and unusual understandings of this command. You could take a guy like Simeon the Stylite, for example. So, wanting to deny himself worldly comforts and distractions, Simeon spent roughly 30 years living on top of a pole in Syria in the early 400s AD. Others have hid themselves away in caves, joined monasteries or nunneries. But these approaches, I would say, are really out of step with the New Testament. I mean, you could just ask how did Jesus' disciples respond to their Lord's command? Did they live on poles? No. They didn't hide in caves. They went out to the nations proclaiming the gospel. We see that there is no virtue in merely doing without. Jesus himself didn't live a life of isolation. He attended parties and celebrations. He preached to the masses. Jesus isn't calling us to be hermits or monks, to outdo one another in doing without. Now, instead, we see that to deny yourself is to acknowledge that the universe does not revolve around you. It is to understand that you are not the person of greatest importance, so that your life is no longer lived by controlling desires for comfort or safety or wealth, because you are living for someone greater than you. To deny yourself. So it begs the question, my friend, what is your aim in life? What do you hope the ultimate outcome will be for you? We should understand the truth of Scripture that living to satisfy yourself will not bring you closer to God. The way to follow Jesus is to deny yourself. To live for yourself will lead you farther away. But to deny yourself means to reject the idea of living what, for what's best for you, for what's best in terms of what the world could give you, what the treasures and temptations of Dubai could provide for you. It is to give yourself up to Jesus, to follow Him as the Christ, the Savior, King of your life, to acknowledge that He is the person of greatest importance. So, You should follow Him, even if that means you have to take up a cross. And that's the second part of Jesus' command. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. In ancient times, the Roman government used the cross, crucifixion, as a cruel and horrible instrument of torture and execution. Every aspect of a crucifixion was designed to cause humiliation, slow and torturous pain, and an agonizing death. It was not merely an execution. It was designed to be a sign. A warning to everyone who saw that person nailed to a tree of what would happen if you stood against the power and might of the Roman Empire. And so victims of crucifixion were stripped of their clothes. Then they were nailed through their hands and their feet to crossed pieces of wood. They were nailed to the wood so that they could be lifted up. A living signpost, a dying signpost, a tribute to the power of Rome so that everyone could watch their slow and painful death. So, to experience the cross was to experience the legal opposition of the government. It was to be exposed to great shame and unimaginable suffering, ultimately culminating in death. And all of this begs the question, why would Jesus want to go there? Why would He aim the direction of His life toward the cross? I mean, He knew that that was where He was headed. Just look down again at verse 31. 31. Mark 8, 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. Why would the Christ want to go there? Well, the short answer is because we are broken. We are what's wrong with the world. We are corrupted with sin. We're like a supernova. We have imploded in love for ourselves and exploded in wickedness and crime, in lust and war and greed. No one of us is left uncorrupted. We are not who God made us to be. God has told us in His Word that we were made for Him. We were created to enjoy A perfect relationship with Him, but in rebellion, because we love ourselves, because of our sin, we have chosen to be cut off, separated from God, and we now stand under His judgment. And we see that God is just. In His perfection, He always punishes sin, He always punishes sinners. Just imagine if God didn't punish sinners. If God were like us and heaven were like hell, then no one would have any reason to hope. There would be no ultimate reason for doing anything other than exactly what you felt like doing moment by moment, no matter what the consequences were. But friends, God is a God of justice. And the punishment for offense against an infinitely holy God is eternal death. The eternal, conscious experience of the wrath of God forever. It is to be cut off from the goodness and blessing of God just as Jesus was at the cross. Because we are sinners... We deserve the cross forever. I deserve the cross forever. You deserve the cross forever. In fact, there has only been one who did not deserve the cross, and that was Jesus Christ, the perfect and pure one, God clothed in human flesh. He was innocent and perfectly holy, yet he came. To give his perfection to you, if you would receive him, if you would trust in him. He came to go to the cross. He came to take your place on your cross, if you would turn from self love to trust in him. Jesus died for you. That is the glorious message of the Christian gospel. Jesus died. But he did not remain in the grave. He rose again to life, just exactly as he said he would. I mean, just finish the rest of verse 31 that we just looked at. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Through His death on the cross, Jesus paid the debt of death we owe in full. And now this same death-defeating life, He offers to all who would repent and trust in Him. He offers to everyone who would deny Himself, take up His cross, and follow Me. So, my friends, you stand here at the crossroads between living for yourself and following Jesus. And as you stand here, please listen very carefully to our second point this morning. Consider these motivations that Jesus gives. So why should you make a choice like this? Why should you follow Christ? Here's the motivation. First, because there's something worse than losing your life. There's something worse than losing your life. Look down at verse 35. Mark 8, 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So, what is worse than losing your life? Losing eternal life? Jesus is clear. He's not mincing words or speaking in riddles. If you give yourself to a life centered around you, if you pursue acceptance, comfort, success, ease as the ultimate goal of your life, if you give your heart to this world, you will lose. You will lose eternal life. You will have embraced what God made and rejected the Lord of life who made it. Notice again that this isn't mere suffering for the sake of suffering. The aim of our following, our direction, isn't toward sorrow, but toward Christ. We are not following Him to death. We are following Him to everlasting life. If you turn from the natural self-centered pursuits of the world to Jesus, you do that because you love Him and you love God his gospel, and if you do that, you will have entrusted your life to the one who can safeguard it forever. Now, if you do that, the world may hate you for it. They may imprison you. They may demote you. They may despise you. They may tempt you to turn back. They may even kill you, but nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing So, brothers and sisters in Christ, we know that we have someone truly great to live for. And yet, perhaps one of the biggest surprises in the Christian life is how difficult it is to recognize the power and the glory of Jesus. Perhaps not in the times of suffering or loss, but certainly in the days of the mundane In the ordinariness of our lives. Sickness, job loss, tragedy, these things will drive us to our knees, but going to work and washing the dishes and living normal lives, doing normal things, wearing normal clothes, hanging out with normal friends, living in normal homes, riding in normal cars and buses and trains and planes, the combined weight of the normalness of our lives can be suffocating How easy it is for us to forget that we were created for so much more than paychecks and furniture and the occasional long weekend. But when we look through our dim and distracted eyes into God's Word, we see the crest of the great wave of Christ's glory on the horizon. Every second brings you closer to the moment. When all these normal things will be washed away, but Jesus and His glory will remain. And so will every person you have ever met. We should all remember that there are no temporary people. Each and every one of us was made to be an image-bearer of God, In his lectures to university students known as The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw him now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the care proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It's humbling to acknowledge, isn't it, loved ones, that you have given your life and love and obedience to Jesus Christ, and yet the ordinariness of life sticks to you like gum on the bottom of your shoe. I think one way that you might inject an awareness of eternity, an awareness of the kingdom of heaven into the mundaneness of your home or work or school life would be simply to do this. Take up your task of declaring the truth of Jesus to the immortal, perishing souls that you work with, live with. Make it your aim, in light of the glory of Christ, to speak of Jesus to a coworker, or a neighbor, or a classmate, or a friend. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I, I can't do that. I'm no theologian. I wouldn't even know what to say. Well, I'd urge you just to remember this. Remember that the King of all creation came to us, born in a stable, lived on the road, and accomplished salvation through a cross. So do you think that He couldn't work through you? Let me invite you all, devote some time this week in your CLGs and your small groups to strategize and pray for ways to engage in these kinds of conversations with those who are living around you. Take advantage of the means of grace. If you would follow Christ, well, you can't walk very far unless you eat the food of His Word and drink the truth of His presence. Don't neglect seasons of study of God's Word or times of prayer. Recommit yourself to the 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 read-through-the-Bible plan that you began back in January. If you would follow Christ, feed on Him. Feed on His Word. That's motivation number one. There's something worse than losing your life, and there's something more to live for. Motivation number two, you can't buy your soul. You can't buy your soul. Look down at verses 36 and 37. 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? These are two rhetorical questions. And so when you come across rhetorical questions in the text, the thing to do is to answer them. So, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, it obviously gains him nothing. It would actually make that man the biggest loser. Upon his death, he would lose the whole world. What can a man give in return for his soul? What's the answer? He can give nothing. You do not own your soul. It belongs to the one who created it. And it is not for sale. Last week, Elon Musk negotiated a deal with Twitter to buy your ability to tweet for 44 billion dollars, 44 billion dollars for Twitter, and I can remember life before Twitter, some of you can too, I can also easily conceive of life without Twitter, which makes the 44 billion dollar price tag almost unbelievable to me. Of how much more value, then, loved ones, is one single, immortal, divine image-bearing soul? Friends, these rhetorical questions were designed by Jesus to lead us to the conclusion that there is no profit in gaining all the money of the world, if you could, All of the honor of the world, all of the approval in the world, all of the safety in the world, all of the comfort of the world, because you can't buy a soul. Your net worth, all our net worths, all the net worths of all the people who have ever lived and who ever will live will not be able to shield you from the day of ultimate accountability before Jesus Christ, the judge of all people which leads us to the third and final motivation. Third, Jesus is coming. Look down at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father. With the holy angels. What does it mean to be ashamed of someone? Have you ever been ashamed of someone? It means you don't want to be associated with them. You don't want to be identified with them because that would make you look foolish. It would make you seem unacceptable to whatever society you were hoping to please, it would embarrass you. So, to be ashamed of Christ is to embrace the approval of a condemned, sinful, and adulterous world. It is to trust a fallen world to do what it never can, to trust that it would satisfy you forever. But this world will not last forever. This text is so clearly saying that the day will come when Jesus will bring history to conclusion. The last day will come, and the exile of mankind from the presence of God, our separation from His all-satisfying, glorious presence, will come to an end. For some, that will be a day of great joy. For this church, that will be the day of great vindication and great triumph and great rejoicing. We will behold Christ in His infinite, eternal beauty, and we will be united with Him as His bride. We will be washed clean, perfected, beautifully adorned for our husband. The day brothers and sisters, will actually come when the people of God, when we will no longer be able to want any wrong thing, when our struggle with sin will be over and the last tear will have been shed and wiped away from our faces by the loving hands of our Savior. The Lord Himself will declare that it is done. Mourning and death, it is done. Crying and pain, it is done. All things will be made new. The moment will come when the truths of our most cherished songs we sing together here will actually be our reality, the reality in which we live. We will be home, covered in His righteousness, faultless, freed from sinning. We will behold our glorious Savior in whose presence we will know fullness and joy forever and ever and ever. Listen again to our friend C.S. Lewis. He writes, At present, we are on the outside of the true world. On the wrong side of the door, we discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot keep the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in When human souls have become as perfect, involuntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on the full glory of Jesus, that greatest glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Jesus will accomplish what all the world's learning, all the world's thinking, all the world's philosophizing and politicizing with all the innovation and money and power, Jesus will accomplish what we could never begin to imagine to achieve. And we see that He has the, prom- the ability to keep every promise He has ever made. When He promises that He will make all things new, we understand that this is a promise He can keep because everything is His. His new creation will not be affected by any pandemic. There will be no more goodbyes, no more disappointments, no more downsizing, only the ever-expanding experience of the glory and joy of God forever. When He returns, when He comes in the glory of His Father with the angels, we will understand that he has never lacked any resource needed to cause every word he's ever spoken to come to pass. If he says there shall be no longer any more death, nor mourning or crying or pain anymore, that's a promise he can keep, because life and death, sorrow and joy, sickness and health are all in his hands. That's why the Apostle Paul could encourage the Corinthian church in the midst of the uncertainties that they faced. He would write to them and said, All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So we see here, loved ones, that Jesus is the treasure beyond belief. All creation, all of history and all eternity exists to declare the beauty of his glory, and so to be ashamed of him now is cosmic insanity. Friends, lift your eyes up from the mundane and temporary treasures the world offers. Deny yourself Take up your cross and follow Him. This is what explains a life like William Borden's. Following Jesus is worth it because choosing the approval of this sinful and adulterous world and rejecting the friendship and a love and approval of Christ will result in Jesus' ultimate rejection of you. And your body and soul will perish in the end. And absolutely nothing, no amount of approval or reward in this world will be accepted as payment to buy your soul out of hell. All your effort to save your soul by pursuing human approval and honor and comfort and safety will only result in everlasting loss. But if you accept the cross of opposition now, if you embrace the shame and suffering, even death, because you love Jesus and His gospel, then your body will be raised just as His was, and your soul will be kept safe forever with Him. So the simple thrust of this passage is this. Take up the cross of opposition and shame and suffering, even death. Deny the old self that lives for the approval of others, that craves the things of this world. Stand in the new life found only in Christ and in the new self, the new self that loves Jesus more than life, follow Him. As William Borden lay dying in his bed, he spent the last hours of his life praying out loud as often as he could. He was praying for the lost people of Arabia. His last words were spoken to a friend who came to sit by his bed and to pray with him. Borden said, now we must work all the harder, for the time is short. You can visit William Borden's grave at the American Cemetery in Cairo, Egypt. On the headstone of his grave, you'll find these words written, Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do ask for your grace, the, for the work of your Spirit in our hearts, fueling and strengthening and increasing these desires the desire to follow you, to turn away from the treasures and temptations of this world to refuse to give our hearts to them and to choose to live in wholehearted obedience, love, and devotion to Christ who gave Himself for us. We pray that You would open our hearts in compassion for the lost world around us, Open our mouths that we might declare the wondrous truths of your word. Grant that we would bear fruit in our lives as we live as ambassadors for Christ in these days. We pray that we would take up our cross, having denied ourselves, and that we would follow Christ, our Savior and Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.